right now, there's actually a big fight going on. You know, there's a fight between people who think that the future is going to be a lot worse um, and uh, people who think that, like, maybe we actually have hit a bottom and we're about to come back up. Now, me personally, I don't think that we've hit a true bottom. But at the same time, I've never really tried to say that I'm in the business of timing the market. You know, I have an algorithm that times the market for me, and it does a much better job than me. Sure. You know, so me, I'm looking at, you know, what are these things going to be worth two years down the line, five you're, years down the line? You're still thinking long term. Definitely. All right, everybody, welcome to the Angel Research Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Stutman. And as usual, we are here to talk about the market's hottest stock stories, unique investment opportunities, and money-making strategies. Uh, we have Jason Williams on the show today. Jason is a repeat guest, but you know, for the for people who haven't seen the uh, you know the other episode, uh, the long and short of it is that Jason is a reformed Wall Street banker who is uh, now an investment analyst for uh, for the retail community. And uh, today we're just going to kind of be talking about some general economic trends. Uh, it's a pretty crazy market out there right now. I kind of like to call it the age of uncertainty right now. So hopefully Jason can uh, give us a little bit, a uh, little bit of certainty. Um, we are, uh, I guess we have the. It's been the worst start of the year since the Great Depression. Um, retail investors are in a state of capitulation, and there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, let's start with the topic of inflation. Uh, Jason, how do you feel about inflation right now? Maybe what direction it's going? Uh, should is this something we should be concerned about? Or? That's a pretty broad question. Uh, how do I feel about it? I don't like it. Sure. Um, <laughs> Neither do I. I don't think anybody does. Um, I've always been one of those people that argued that, you know, that, that the Fed sets these target inflation rates and like, oh, inflation is good. I don't know. I mean, you know, growth is good, but inflation doesn't necessarily have to be great. Um, and the thing is, is, is like, I mean, inflation is high and it's been growing and people keep wanting to say that it's peaked. And, you know, maybe it's, it's peaked for the short term, but I really don't think it's peaked in the long term. You know, um, we've got a I – mean, basically, we've got a Federal Reserve that caused this. You know, we've got a government and a Federal Reserve that caused this. You know, they printed tons of money. They just pumped money out into the economy. They threw gas onto a fire that was already out of control. And then, you know, when they saw what was happening, they were like, nah, man, it's not that bad. You know, it's fine. We've got this transitory inflation. Sure. It's, it's, it's not going to be that bad. And then when they finally admitted that, you know, it wasn't transitory inflation and it was going to be sticking around. And just like before I get into that, transitory – when I think transitory, I think that means something comes and then it goes, right? But like what they meant is that it was transitory in that, you know, that increase wasn't going to continue. But like once prices rise, they usually don't go back down. Sure. You know what I mean? Unless like a bubble pops or something. Yeah. Um, but typically, you know, like once that increase is there, it's there. And, you know, so that's not transitory to me, even if the increases had stopped. But we Did, all knew that the increases weren't going to stop. Do you think they just changed their definition of transitory like after the fact? Or is that oh, really totally. what they meant from the beginning? I, I can see them like channeling, you know, 1990s Bill Clinton with like, oh, well, that d- depends on what the meaning of is. is yeah, you sure. Know? <laughs> um, you know, so I, it's just... It's kind of ridiculous. The Fed's the one that got us into this. And the reason that I sort of see, you know, I see inflation continuing to to build is because, you know, the Fed, in order to get inflation to stop, has to cause a recession, has to. They have to raise rates up above where inflation is. Sure. And so they're targeting, what, 3.5% by the end of this year, 4.5% by 2023, with inflation at almost 9%. Yeah. So, I mean, technically, in order to stop inflation, they have to get their interest rate up above the rate of inflation, which is 9%. So, like, we're talking about 10% interest rates. I just don't think this Fed has the, uh, has the chutzpah 
to do that. Sure. You know, for lack of a, of a better word for the Internet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's we're obviously kind of in this, like, butterfly effect situation where, you know, inflation is an issue and then the Fed responds by raising rates and then that is going to potentially throw us into a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you think that a recession is pretty much inevitable? I think it is. Um, I'm I'm – I'm not sure how long it would last, though, you yeah. know, because I think that, you know, I think that we're already in one, you know, when it comes yeah. down to it, I think that we're already in one. When you go back and you're looking at the um, the, the GDP estimates from the first quarter, uh, they're like neg- uh, for like negative one point four percent growth. Um, when you look at what the estimates are for the second quarter, which is ending what like this week, yeah. um, we're recording this on Wednesday. The second quarter ends on, on Thursday, the 30th. And, you know, if we don't have growth or if we had a little bit of negative growth, then technically that meets the definition of a recession. It's two quarters of backward sure. progress. When can investors expect that uh, that data to come in? Uh, that's usually like a month behind. Okay. So, you know, I mean, basically we'll probably be getting – we'll be getting that sometime in July. Okay. Um, but then also you think like this is June, you know, and we just got the most revised estimate first quarter. And the first quarter ended at the end of March. So, you know, I mean, we'll continue to get revisions and things like that. Sure. Um, but we'll start to see that real number um, in, uh, in July. And so the Atlanta Fed has this thing called GDP Now, where it's basically a website where they put up what their forecast is mm. for the GDP of the quarter that we're in. And they've been forecasting zero to negative growth this entire quarter. So I'm thinking we're in a recession. But like I said, I don't know how long it lasts because I don't know that the Federal Reserve, you know, has the has, has what it takes to, to, you know, like get through that. Sure. I, I wonder if they, you know, become data dependent again and they panic because the markets are tanking, the economy looks bad. You know, there's midterm elections coming up and, you know, they they either stop raising rates or they maybe even step back and lower them some, you know, because uh, and, and you think about it. I, I talk about Paul Vockler and I'm like, oh, man, somebody needs to do what Vockler did. But Vockler would raise rates by like 6% and then drop them by 6%. Sure. You know, he was trying to play that balancing act too. And finally, you know, he just sort of stopped playing the balancing act and put the rates up above yeah. inflation. And that's what capped inflation. It also caused a huge recession. Um, well, I do think that's been one of the issues is that they've been so kind of like passive about this and they're trying to like respond to the data slowly, but it's just uh-huh. like they're not acting quick enough. And that's kind of what has got us, gotten Definitely. us in this mess in the first place. And, and trying to trying to ride that line where they're balancing economic growth and lowering inflation. And what that makes me worry about is stagflation. Sure. You know, that's like, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a dirty word. People hate hearing and, it. And what is stagflation exactly? It's, stagflation. stagflation is just a period of inflation where while – Unemployment is also high, or is uh, it's it... a period of inflation while the economy isn't growing or is shrinking. Okay. So basically, you get stagnation, which is the lack of growth, and then inflation, which is you know the hikes in prices. Sure. Um, and what can really lead to that is that wage price spiral, which we haven't really seen start yet. Yeah. But that's basically where you know prices go up so much that employees are like, "Look, man, I can't afford to buy anything anymore. So they start I need demanding. a raise." And if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to quit and you're not going to be able to run your business. So companies are like, all right, well, we'll give you a raise. But in order to pay for that raise, we got to hike the cost of our products. Sure. And that's and, essentially how civilizations collapse. And so hopefully we don't, we oh, don't go man, there. Hopefully we don't go there. I mean, we definitely got into that in the 1970s, you know, um, during the last time we were in a, a state of stagflation. Yep. Um, funny because back then we also had an energy crisis. We seem to be in an energy crisis now. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, Mark Twain's always given credit for this saying, but there's really no proof that he said it, but it's a great saying. And it's that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Sure. And we're definitely seeing, you know, some verses that sound a lot same than 
uh, a lot the same as the last ones. Do you see any kind of good news in terms of like maybe when the market might turn around? Uh, Obviously, I think the market, you know, is always ahead, a little bit ahead of the economy because people are kind of trying to look, they're trying to look ahead. Oh, definitely. So, So is... Is everything kind of baked in for, like, for investors? Like, should we start buying now because all this fear is already baked in and it's peak fear? Or it, it, should we wait a couple more months? What, what's your, your strategy on this right now? I mean, that's definitely a tough question to answer. Um, you know, I don't think that everything is baked in. Um, and you're definitely right when you say that, you know, the, the, market, the market's a predictor. You know, it's a predicting mechanism. They talk about uh, the market as a discounting mechanism. And by discounting, they don't mean what most people think of when they hear discount, like, oh, that's on sale. Um, but no, it's a discounting mechanism, whereas, you know, it basically predicts what something will be worth in the future. And then people decide what they're willing to pay for that now, you know, and that's what it means by a discounting mechanism. So you're absolutely right. You know, the market is is predicting the future. And right now, there's actually a big fight going on. You know, there's a fight between people who think that the future is going to be a lot worse um, and uh, people who think that, like, maybe we actually have hit a bottom and we're about to come back up. Now, me personally, I don't think that we've hit a true bottom, but at the same time, I've never really tried to say that I'm in the business of timing the market. You know, I have an algorithm that times the market for me, and it does a much better job than me. Sure. You know, so me, I'm looking at, you know, what are these things going to be worth two years down the line, five years down the line? You're still thinking long term. Definitely. But, I mean, if you're thinking, you know, if you really want to put money to work right now, then my recommendation is definitely big and boring. You know, for now, big and boring. I love giving people small stocks that could just explode through the roof. But in a time like this, you know, people want stability. And big, boring companies like Apple and Amazon and Microsoft, they give that kind of stability. You know, um, I really like uh, I really like cybersecurity right now. You know, um, cybersecurity has not penetrated the market very much at all. And you've got a lot more connected devices now than we had even, you know, two years ago before the pandemic hit. Sure. And I think cybersecurity is going to be big. So I think that's something to be looking at. But so yeah, I, I agree you know. with you, actually. I kind of like the idea of software right now because mm-hmm. a lot of the, a lot of the, I feel like we're about to enter what's, you know, an, an earnings recession um, where a lot of these companies are, their throughput costs are, are through the roof. But with a software company, it's kind of like the, those costs are still pr- relatively low. Right. Um, and, and they can maintain, maintain those things. So I like software right now. Um, speaking of rotating, um, what should investors be looking at specifically in terms of like maybe uh, actual parameters? Like if I were to run a stock screen, what are you what are you looking for? You said big big companies, so like large cap. But are there any any other like you know key indicators, uh, financial indicators of a company that an investor should be looking for right now? I mean, right now, you know, obviously you hear it a lot in the news and everything that the, that the growth trade is over. That you know investors are looking for value. Investors are looking yeah. at fundamentals. And I mean, honestly, cash flows are big. You know, if a company has positive cash flows, then it's going to be able to get through anything. Sure. You know, it can support itself. It doesn't have to take on debt. It doesn't have to sell new shares. Um, so positive cash flows right now. Companies that have a net profit. Um, you know, companies that companies that return money to shareholders too. Yeah. You know, income is going to be very, very important. One, if we do have a recession, you know, there's going to be layoffs. I mean, there have already been layoffs. They're already announcing more. You know, companies that laid off 20% of their workforce in January are making plans to lay off another 10 to 20% now. You know, they're planning for a deep recession. Sure. And uh, I mean, if you lose your job, you know, I. I when, when daddy doesn't work, mama doesn't get paid. So, you know, you need a way to, to have something that you can fall back on, some income that you can yeah. rely on that, like, you're not working for, you know? Sure. 
Um, and that's definitely something that we're really focused on in uh, the wealth advisory. You know, that's one of my um, one of my investing services. And actually, I've got a special sort of thing that I've put together about that. Basically, I've gone back and I've compiled all of the research that you know I and my team have ever done on income producing opportunities, and basically picked out the best income producing opportunities that we've been able to find. Uh, there's nine of them, you know, and and you also added, have a book, right? Oh, and again, there's also a book uh, called Endless Income, and it's basically, I think that's about 33, maybe 34 ways, um, but more than 30 ways to basically like make more money, keep more of the money that that you make, you know, protect it from the tax man, and to spend less, you know, to be able to get things for free. Sure. You know, get paid to golf on some of the world's best courses, you know, uh, get paid to take vacations. Um, and and then just you know be able to get that income and, and not really have to work for it. So like that, neat, that neat little income, income tricks yeah. that people can use. Little tricks that I you know sort of picked up uh, when I was working on Wall Street. You know, working with like super rich people. You know, the the really wealthy. You know, they don't necessarily get there by working for it. You know, I mean, like yeah, they work hard and they and they work for it, but they make their money work for them. So you know, sure. if they find a way to uh, to make a little extra money on the side, be that you know owning a a restaurant franchise or I don't know, maybe even owning a bunch of vending machines that, that sit outside sure. of schools, you know, they'll do it. <clears throat> All right. So um, I guess we, we could put a link in the description for, for some of that information. Uh, I, I also wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, you mentioned this algorithm that you yeah. use. Uh, so, and we kind of were talking about like parameters. That's something that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. investors should be looking for. Uh, can you maybe give us a little bit of detail about this algorithm, what parameters it's looking for, and just you know tell us a little bit more about that? Definitely. So, I mean, this algorithm, it all sort of stems from my time on Wall Street. Um, I started at Morgan Stanley like in the depths of the 2008 financial crisis. You know, so when I started there, I basically just watched my parents, my friends' parents, you know, older friends of mine lose like 75% of their retirement savings. And then I went to Morgan Stanley, and I watched my bosses cashing, you know, gigantic, you know, million, multi-million dollar bonuses from the bailout packages that they got from the taxpayers, which were my parents and my friends' parents and my older friends and even me at the time, you know. So I was like, wait a minute, like retail investors just got screwed and now they're bailing out the guys that screwed them? Like, no, this isn't cool. You know, like this this, this can't last. This, this, this will not stand, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, it was just uh, – it was just a slap in the face, you know. It was a real slap in the face. It really woke me up, and so I stuck around Morgan Stanley for for long enough, basically, to learn what I needed to learn, um, you know, to pad my bank account a little bit because the pay is pretty good in an investment bank. Sure. Um, but when I left, you know, I really I, I left because I decided that 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 wasn't for me. That you know, at Morgan, we always had a way to make money or make sure that our clients made money, and usually that was by taking advantage of somebody else, and that's just not what I wanted to do, you know? Because we were taking advantage of the, the retail investors, you know, the ones that bailed us out and gave, and gave my bosses multi-million dollar bonuses. And so, you know, what we were doing, you know, the data, the data that we had really, like, allowed us to, to have an advantage. And so I sort of started looking at the data and looking at, you know, what – what we were doing with that data at Morgan Stanley. And when I left, I decided I wanted to basically create what we were using there, but for retail investors. Sure. You know, so uh, I worked with some of the best programmers out there, you know, people that have worked for some big banks, major corporations, designing trading systems for them. And, you know, we really 
basically what we're looking for here is momentum. You know, we wanted to use those big banks' data against them the way those big banks use our data against us. And those big banks have to report their trades. They have to. So we've got their data and we can see what they're buying. We can see if they're moving into sure. the stock or if they're moving out of the stock. And the, your the algorithm is responding to this, what, on a weekly basis, a daily basis? On a, well, so we run the algorithm uh, pretty close to on a, on a daily basis, especially okay. in markets like this. On a weekly basis, it's going to give us uh, new trades. Okay. You know? But we'll run it, you know, sort of on a daily basis, especially when, like I said, when the market's, you know, really iffy like it is now, really volatile, just to sort of see if any of those signals that it's giving us have changed throughout the course of the week. And how has that been performing in the in the current environment? I mean, the S&P 500 is down. I Last I checked, it was like down like 22% yeah, so, year to date. So, so yeah, year to date, um, S&P came up a little bit. S&P's down 20% year to date. The Dow's down about 15% year to date. And the NASDAQ's down, um, let's say, 28.5%, almost 30% year to date. I literally, I know this because I, I literally just uh, sure. just just shot a, a TWA top 10 uh, where I was mentioning that, you know, how rough the markets have been. And um, I actually just did a recap for uh, the subscribers of my algorithmic trading service. Uh, since we're coming in to close out the first half of the year, I figured, like, let's see how we did in H1. Yeah. And, um, you know... <laughs> The, the portfolio took a big hit the past couple of weeks. You yeah. know, I won't lie. Um, but we are beating the markets by over 200% this year. Wow. So, you know, you've got, uh, you've got the markets dropping a lot. And, you know, we're able, to, we're able to outperform them like that. And so, you know, that means that, you know, over the course of the year, we are down a little bit. But sure, it's as all, re soon as it's these all markets, relative. It, it is. It's all yeah. relative. So, you know, with the markets down, you know, 30 percent, with the NASDAQ down 30 percent, you know, we're looking at maybe a 4 percent loss. Yeah. Um, but when the markets turn around, I mean, you think about that 200 percent outperformance of, of the Dow. The Dow has been the outperformer this year. It's been the best index out of the three. Yeah. You know, it's fallen the least. And we're beating it by about 212 percent. So when the Dow goes back to earning 8 to 10 percent a year, yeah. we're going to be looking at, you know, a, a, a hundred to two hundred percent a year. Sure, you know? that makes sense. So, so you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty pleased with how it's working. It's yeah. basically doing exactly what I intended it to do. It's protecting our money during a market downturn, and it's going to help us grow it when the market goes back up. Okay, that's really exciting. Um, there's there's a topic that I kind of wanted to maybe push off to another podcast, but I think uh, I you had sent me some uh, some information the other day, uh, and I kind of wanted to just touch on it sure. real quickly before we kind of close this yeah, out. Definitely. And that is the um, and I just think because it's really timely, and that is the helium shortage oh, yeah. that's going on right now. And I, I saw an article that was essentially talking about how I guess Harvard University has had to like you know halt certain studies yeah. because they don't have they don't have this resource this critical resource of helium and it's you know helium is not something you normally think of you no. know, people think of lithium or cobalt or gold or platinum or you know all these other resources and very rarely do people think of actual gases but yeah. you have um, you know you have some insight on this and, and actually a, a, a potential stock play on it so maybe you can give us some more information on that I do um, and I got to tell you I'm really happy to have seen that article uh, recently because people have been laughing at me for like a couple of years now uh, when I've been telling them how expensive helium's going to get and how stupid we're going to feel for blowing up party balloons and making our voices sound silly sure I actually know? had the idea to kind of start this podcast off with a helium balloon and I was going to put it you know it just didn't work <laughs> I would have given you a hard time, you know, a year or two from now, that balloon could be worth a thousand bucks. Um, and I'm serious. So helium, people don't think about it. You know, people really only think about helium as like the thing that goes in like the Macy's blimps and, and the stuff that makes balloons float mm -hmm. and makes your voice sound silly and everything. Um, but helium is used as a lifting gas in industrial applications um, because it doesn't compress very much. You know, it's, it's hard to compress so they can push it through. It doesn't get 
uh, taken down to a liquid. It's used um, in uh, deep freezing things. Um, it's one. It's the only uh, element on the planet that can be cooled to like such a low temperature. It's used in in making MRIs. It's used in making um, silicon chips. You sure. Know? So like Silicon Valley literally can't exist without helium. And I've been I've been talking about it for I want to say two years, three years now, because um, <clears throat> oh back. Gosh, it's been a while. It's been almost 20 years since they did it. But the United States used to have the biggest stockpile in the world of helium, right? You know, like so much that we provided the majority of the world's helium, something like 60% of it. And the government decided that helium was cheap and it wasn't really worth that much and we didn't need a stockpile of it. So they sold the stockpile off on the open markets for less than what the cost of helium was at the time. Okay. So now – our stockpile is basically gone, and we're reliant on countries like Russia and Qatar and um, you know China and, and you know basically countries that don't like us or countries that are sure. not very stable to get our helium. And we need helium. And know? is that kind of what's causing the supply crisis right now? Is it the situation in Russia, or is there other stuff going on? Partially in Russia, because Russia uh, Russia is one of the biggest exporters of helium, and uh, there was a fire at one of their plants, and so their their helium, like their biggest helium exporting, you know, plant had to shut down. So it basically just like knocked everything off the market. Sure. And honestly, you know, with all of the, um, um, you know, with all of the. Uh, what's it called? Uh, things that we're doing to Russia, like all of the, the things sanctions. That, yeah. the sanctions. Yeah. Thank you. Just the word was escaping me. It was like right on the tip of my tongue. But yeah, with all the sanctions on Russia, I mean, even if they were able to produce it, would we be allowed to buy it? Who knows? Probably not. Um, maybe if it was really that desperate, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's got a lot to do with it. You know, you've got uh, the supply chain crisis is making itself. Like I said, you know, countries like Qatar are supplying our our um, our helium, and you know that means we've got to get it out of the desert. You know, across a bunch of oceans to Silicon Valley, you know, to use it or yeah. to like these places, uh, to the MRI machines, you know, to the lifting facilities, to Harvard so that they can run their physics lab. Okay. You know? And look, I don't want to give up, give up too much information because I know you have paying subscribers, but uh, do you have you already recommended uh, the stock around there or I what's have. the you have? So I have I've uncovered it, a company. There's a couple of companies that are working on it, yeah. but basically, you know, after going through all of them, I found one that you know they basically have the largest reserves of clean helium. Is it a domestic supplier or where? It's, it's somewhat domestic, somewhat not. It's a North American supplier. Okay, sure. So you know, it's here. That's it's domestic. safe. They have, you know, some stuff in Canada, some stuff in the U.S. Yeah. Um, but basically, you know, they, they just have – they have the best business plan. They've got, you know, great data to go out and find it. They've got proven reserves, and the reserves that they have are clean where it's helium. It's not mixed with anything else. They don't have to separate natural gas out of it. They don't have to separate toxic, like, you know, chemicals sure. out of it. They can just get that helium and send it right out. And where can investors get that information? Um, so that one is reserved for my uh, for the uh, readers of my Future Giants newsletter. Okay, um, it's uh, in Future Giants. We sort of we invest in in small companies that we think have uh, are going to be able to make a big impact on their industry and become huge in the future. You know, Future Giants. Sure. Um, and uh, you know, this one, I mean, this one really hit the nail on the head. And I've been looking for a nice 
pure helium play for a while. Yeah. And when I found this, you know, the property and the data that they had in Canada was great. They just started expanding into the U.S. They're expanding their American footprint now, too. So, I mean, you know, not only did we have it originally in a friendly neighbor close by, but now, you know, we're going to be getting it here from the U.S. And, I mean, that's what we need. We need these domestic supplies or we need to be getting them from close to us, from our friends, from people who aren't going to just be like, hey, you know what? You can't have that anymore. Okay. Well, that's also really interesting stuff. Definitely not something that you're going to kind of like read about in Bloomberg necessarily. Definitely Um, not. I mean, maybe like, you know, in a couple of years after this company has already taken off and solved the problem, you'll hear about it. But uh, no, I mean, nobody's talking about this helium thing because nobody wants to get laughed at like I've been, you know? Well, look, we appreciate the insight and kind of like that that obscure uh, stock market story that you you always bring to the table. Um, We're going to wrap it up. We'll leave some links in the description to uh, to APM, to TWA, and to uh, Future Giants for anybody who's interested. And uh, if you're watching the video, like, subscribe, all that good stuff, and we'll see you next time. Very cool. And Jason, I just want to thank you. And like, if I could put this out there before we go, with the Wealth Advisory, I, I compiled all of those income opportunities for everybody. Um, but I also understand that times are tough. Everything costs a lot more. And I don't want to add to that burden. So I'm doing what I'm sort of calling recession pricing, or maybe it's pre-recession pricing if we're not really in one yet. Sure. But basically, you know, I usually offer the Wealth Advisory for about $250 a year, which honestly is a deal. It's a, it's a discount. But when, you know, it might cost you $250 to fill up your gas tank next week, you know, I feel like that's asking a lot for people. And I'm also asking them to commit for a year. Sure. So I, 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 want people to, I want people to have the benefit of the Wealth Advisory, and I don't want them to have to worry about not being able to buy food, not being able to buy gas. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do something new, and I'm offering the Wealth Advisory uh, on a sort of a trial basis, a monthly subscription for $9.99 a month. You know, less good. than ten bucks a month, and if you know you'll have you'll have the first month to try it out. If you don't like it, I'll give you that ten bucks back. If you do like it, you'll be on for as many months as you want to be, and I'll never charge you more than nine ninety nine a month. Well, look, I think you know during a period of inflation, that's very kind of you. You know, <laughs> I try to do what I can. You know, I want to help, and you know, charging people an arm and a leg isn't going to help them. Okay, well, great. Well, look, seriously, check out uh, Jason Sim- Jason Jason Simpkins, Jason Williams, uh, and uh, you know, check out his publications. Really smart guy, has a ton of great insight, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, man. Check out Simpkins too. He's a smart guy. Simpkins. Is a smart guy. <laughs>